0: Welcome back to another episode of Reading for a Change, a podcast from Moody Publishers where we take an inside look at the books transforming our lives and shaping the world. Uh, I'm your host, Drew Dick, and I just realized as I was reading that tagline uh, about transforming our lives and shaping the world, it sounds a tad uh, grandiose or something, but really, what we're doing here is just having conversations with some of our favorite authors uh, about books that are portals to transformation, uh, ways you know, resources that we can use to become a little more like Jesus. Hopefully, with every passing year. And the book and the author we're talking to today um, is really just perfectly in line with that goal. The guest today is John Mark Comer. He is the pastor uh, at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. He's the author of many books, including Loveology, Garden City, God Has a Name, and his most recent book, which I just read and is absolutely excellent, and which we'll be discussing today The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. John Mark, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me along, Drew. Happy to be here. Anytime, any chance to talk about books and reading, I'm in.
0: <laughs> awesome. And I should say, too, John Mark and I are kind of neighbors, but mm-hmm. I'm the uncool neighbor because I'm out in the burbs in Vancouver, Washington, which is about 15 or 20 minutes away from downtown Portland. And, John Mark, you are like right in the middle of the city.
1: Yes, but we're close enough that we've had coffee in the flesh before
0: Yes. And someday we'll do it again. I mean, on the other side of this pandemic in 13 years, we will.
1: I I just believe that in faith. I'm I'm
0: believing with you, brother. I'm believing too. And I, I feel like I have to confess too, I'm sitting here at home drinking Starbucks coffee. Oh, and I rebuke
1: that, that spirit.
0: <laughs> I thought you might, because correct me if I'm wrong, you're kind of one of those snobby coffee guys, right? You're down yep, there at Hart I'm, or something. I'm and, yeah. sitting
1: here. Yeah, Hearts my go-to. I'm sitting right now. I'm drinking Proud Mary, which is uh, one of my favorite shops. That's right by our church building.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, hey, listen, man, I'm out in the burbs. I'm trying to fit in. Okay. That's okay, but when man. I- <laughs>
1: When I come down there, we all have a past, you
0: know, this is my testimony. Oh, man. John Mark. I love this book. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It is. It's so wise. It's so deep, but it's accessible. Um, And I think it just nails a problem that so many of us are dealing with in our modern world. I mean, we're so busy. We're inundated with technology. We're continually distracted. And yet there's this deep discontent with that kind of life. This feeling that something has to change. I'm wondering if you can, like you do in the beginning of the book, briefly recount your own story of coming to this realization. You're at this church that's exploding in growth. Everything's going great, but there was something you didn't like in your soul. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I just uh, I write a little bit in the preface about kind of a time in my life about eight years ago now, a decade ago where i had been on a team and we planted a church that became a mega church very fast grew very very fast and i was in my late 20s and just leading this large organization and teaching six times on a sunday and multiple different locations and you know from an external by american metrics of success If you were watching from the outside, it would have looked like things were going really well. But by Mm. metrics of success in the kingdom of God and from an insider's perspective, you were to look at my soul and my body and my marriage and my family and my closest relationships, I was in rapid decline and heading for a soon-to-be cliff, you know, Mm. some kind of a nervous breakdown at best, if not some kind of a a deeper moral failure. And so by the grace of God, I just had this kind of real epiphany, wake-up moment, I came across that saying of the philosopher Dallas Willard, who has really started to play a key role in my life and the way I think about church and discipleship to Jesus. And at one point he said to a mentee of his, you know, that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Mm -hmm. And then he said, Mm -hmm. you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And it was just a weird, I kind of had a tuning fork. The best analogy I could think of is like, I don't know if you play music at all, Drew, or play guitar at any point, but like, if you know what a tuning fork is, yeah. it's this little like metal instrument, you know, and you hit it and it's tuned to middle C or whatever. And if you're close, it's really interesting. It's like you feel a vibration in your bones And Hmm. I don't understand the science of this, like as as your bones literally come into contact with the reality that is middle C. And Hmm. I think something about that when he said that, you know, part of my mind was like, hurry's the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. I mean, I live in this like hyper-secular, hyper-progressive city. As you know, we're on the front, you know, right now as we record this, we're on the front page of every international news organization in the world for the social unrest here. If you were to ask me like, what's the greatest challenge, you know, to following Jesus in a city like Portland in an era like the late modern world, you know, I don't know what I would have said prior to that, but hurry would not have even made my top 10 list, you Mm. know? But the longer I sit with Willard's thesis that the great challenge of our day and age is really hurry and all that kind of moniker is for, is a stand-in for, the more I really come to a deep conviction that he was on to something.
0: He sure was. And that's a great phrase. Um, And for those uh, people who are unfamiliar with Willard – he, he's, well, he died relatively recently. Uh, so he's this late um, philosopher slash sage who just was a brilliant guy. You'd you probably want to start with like re- Renovation of the Heart. Uh, and that's where yes. the, the title of the book comes from, uh, which I think is just great. You know, one line as I was reading that just stopped me in my tracks, I had to reread it because it was so good uh, was when you wrote, I think it's on page 23, Hurry and love are incompatible. And, yes. and I kind of wanted to like push back against that. Like, well, no, I mean, come on. If you love someone, you got to hurry and you got to do that. No, it's so true. And then the examples that you cited where you talked about looking at your own life and, and the moments in which you were maybe the least loving, especially towards your family, are when you're in a hurry. And that resonated right. with me. And it was it was convicting. Yeah, because, as a dad. <laughs> as yes. a dad with
1: know. three young
0: kids. And and this is the cruel irony. Uh, when I look back on my own life, often our biggest like fights as a family at least pre COVID were when we were on our way to church and I'm trying to get these kids out the door. And I'm like, listen, you little jerks, shut up, get in the van. We got to take you to church. Go worship Jesus. Now (laughs) you got to find out how much God loves you. Uh,
1: imagine, imagine that exact same scenario, but you're going to preach at the church and then just, that is my life right there. So,
0: yeah, I'm not uh, as bad because I can just sit in the back pew and kind of get I over my, my thing and confess my sins and you're up there preaching. So, yeah, that, that yes. definitely hit home. I think everyone can uh, relate to that. Here's one issue that I have, though. OK, so I think for me, busyness and, and really being hurried all the time because of that makes me feel important. So if someone asked yeah. me how I was doing, hey, Drew, what's going on these days? How's life? And I was just like, you know what? I'm kind of relaxed. Things are pretty slow. I'm just kind of kicking back. That would be tough for me because I'd feel like a loser, honestly. Yes. Right? Yes. Because so I, mm-hmm. my question I guess for you is how much of that factors into the problem of hurry that it ties into our sense of identity and self-worth to be so busy that we're in a hurry.
1: Yes. Well, of course there's not one answer for that because that is that depends, you know, person to person. You know, you could have somebody who has a really strong grounded in identity and they're not doing it, you know, because they're trying to accomplish and accumulate their way into a sense of self-worth and importance, but just because they have four children and a job and they're in the middle of COVID-19, or you could have somebody who really is disordered in their heart. But I think for a lot of us, you know, hurry is a great kind of litmus test of what our heart actually is dependent on what Thomas Keating called yeah. our emotional pro- programs for happiness, you know, what Calvinists call our idols, what psychologists call our attachments, the things that we think we need to live a happy and safe life. And you know, in a secular society where identity is performative, meaning mm-hmm. because identity is no longer handed to us by our gender or our role as a husband or father or mother or wife or daughter or son, and, uh, because we no longer have, you know, ethnic identities in the same way that people did in the past. I'm not saying that's good or bad. It just, that's just a statement of fact. I'm not moralizing that right. either way, yeah. but because our identity is no longer handed to us from outside. And in fact, that's perceived as a form of oppression or repression because mm. our identity is now self-generated, like we decide who we want to be based on our internal psychological sense of self. Um, yeah. the, and then exert the, that over and
0: against the world. Every Disney exactly. movie, right? <laughs> and <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm sure there are ups, there there are great upsides to that, you know. Um, but the downside to that is your identity is performative and it's fragile, and you need everybody around you to validate your identity. Hmm. And so you're only as good as your last business deal, or your last sermon, or your last Instagram post, or your book sales, or whatever, because you have to perform your identity for the world. And that's the gift of you know, the gospel of Jesus and, you know, Paul's theology of identity in the New Testament or the writer John's theology of identity in the New Testament. You are in Christ. Your identity is not what you do or what you own or what other people think of you or how popular or successful you are or good looking you are or thin you are. Your identity is who you are loved by. Mm-hmm. And so that's where hurry can just be an incredible gift because it can be a loving message from our body. And, and hurry has a literally a physiological dimension to it where you feel anxiety. Anxiety and stress and an increased heart rate and pulse and, you know, fidgety in your body or exhaustion because of overwork. You can it can be a loving message from your body that, hey, your heart's disordered, you know, Mm. your heart's out of order. Your identity right now is coming from someplace other than receiving love from the Trinitarian community of
0: Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Mm, that 's so good yeah and if you if you get that warning and heed it uh, <laughs> and, and and root your identity in in god 's love for you, then it right. can be a good thing absolutely right. One thing I love that you you wrote about in the book is where you talked about as an analogy really you talked about how we read these biographies of Uh, great or successful people. And when we do, we often adapt practices or adopt Mm -hmm. practices from their lives. It's like, okay, Mm -hmm. this guy woke up at 5 AM. I'm going to try that. Or they skip breakfast or they- Yeah. Only at apples
1: or whatever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I wouldn't do that, man. I'm not going that far. I don't care how successful they are.
1: (laughs) He did an ice bath every morning and cryo freeze in the afternoon or Jack Dorsey, whatever it is. Yes.
0: Whatever it takes. Hey, I mean, yeah. Right. And so you try to emulate them because you want those yes. same results that they got yes. in their lives. And mm-hmm. it's funny. And, and, you know, aside from how silly that might be, we do that uh, for good reason, because I don't think it's things, silly. Yeah, right. That's if our natural them, intuition. Absolutely. Yeah, if they That's got right. those results. I'm going to try it out. But then when it comes to reading the Gospels, i.e. Jesus's biographies, um, we just mine them for theology rather than trying to adopt his way of life. His rhythms. Yes. Um, so and I thought that's great. And that's kind of the structure of the book. You go through these rhythms that were present in Jesus's life, like simplicity and Sabbath and, and um, solitude. Which of those, though, do you feel like is most challenging in our modern context?
1: Mm. Well, yeah, the four. So I just highlight four specific rhythms or practices or what many would call spiritual disciplines from the life and teachings of jesus and there obviously there's a lot more than four rhythms that you read about in the four gospels of jesus but i just highlight four that i think are especially uh, helpful effective and provocative and subversive to kind of the, the culture of hurry that we live in and that silence and solitude um sabbath simplicity and slowing As for which one is the hardest, you know, I I don't think there's one answer for that. That will really depend on the personality. So, uh, you know, an introvert might find silence and solitude a lot easier and more life-giving than an extrovert. And um, somebody with a demanding career, you know, might find uh, Sabbath uh, more challenging or actually might find it easier because they're so tired than a retired (laughs) person. You know, who might struggle to, you know, incorporate Sabbath into the routine because their life isn't, you know, full of chronic exhaustion like hmm. the what was when they were, you know, in the middle of their career and raising three little kids or whatever. So I don't know that there's one answer for that. I think that will each bring to it our own personality, our own stage of life, our own kind of stage of spiritual maturity to it, you know. And so I think each one's like for me, by far, the hardest of those four is slowing, like actually Mm. just slowing my body down day to day. I love quiet prayer with God. I look forward to Sabbath all week long. It's in my muscle memory. I crave it. Simplicity is is harder for me, you know, in a materialistic culture, but I've really come to love an aspect of that. Slowing is the one for me that is just, oh, I feel like a a newbie. (laughs) I feel like a beginner. I just feel like, man, I do not have mastery of this practice at all.
0: Sure. Yeah, no, that's a great point, too, that it, it really depends on your personality type, uh, which of those is going to be the biggest challenge uh, for you. But you're, you're so right. They're all present in the life of Christ, and they're all so essential. When I was um, preparing to have this conversation, I put out the word on Twitter uh, that we were going to talk, and I asked people what questions they would like to ask you. And I got some strange ones, including if he was a hot dog, would he eat himself? Um, I'll <laughs> let you think about that, John Mark. You don't have to answer that. But um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think I'm think i going to decline, you know, that
1: <laughs> you controversial. Of,
0: yeah. yeah. There's, there's no good way to answer that. Um, mm. But most of them were getting at some question about how you implement this in in your life. And one that came up repeatedly was how do you do this? How how do you de-hurry your life or eliminate hurry from your life when you have young children? Because you can't just grab an hour of solitude when you have a toddler. You know, I mean, so how do you pull that off with young, with a young family?
1: Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, you know, I think there are certain stages of life that are more difficult than others, although some of that is magical thinking. So like the lie that young parents believe is that it gets easier. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, don't tell me that man i got little yeah. kids and that's exactly what i'm believing right
1: <laughs> yeah they, they think oh if we can just get through the little kid age and then i'm right. like yeah which is followed by puberty do you have any idea what having adolescent children with hormones racing through their body is like <laughs> oh my goodness you think it's hard now so that's not to add cynicism or
0: exhaustion no it's if, true if, yeah if that and then you got teenagers and yeah yes, there's different challenges they, at every stage and,
1: Then they're in college and then you're worried about who they're going to marry. And then, and I was thinking, so so I'm, I think I'm smart enough doing to it. Hey, you know, and now my, my oldest son is, is heading into high school this week. So like, I'm smart enough to realize, oh, wow, it doesn't get easier. If anything, it's, it's harder, you know, especially for the dad and, um, or, or more work maybe is a better way to say that. But I'm still living in the illusion of, well, when they go off to college or, you know what I mean, when we're yeah. empty nesters. You know, I know there are – I have wonderful kids. This is not a statement about my kids. This is a statement about my own spiritual immaturity. But I know there are some parents <laughs> that really struggle when their kids go away with the transition to an empty nest. I do not sure. think I will be one of those parents. You're <laughs> awesome. Uh, oh, that's, that's, that's not a statement about my children. That's about my own psychosis. But um, my children are wonderful. <laughs> But I was chatting actually to Pete Scazzaro. Uh, I'm sure you know Pete or know I do. Pete. I've
0: hung out with him in his house in New York. Yes, awesome guy. Healthy,
1: Spiritual, yes, hero of mine. And so we we Zoom once in a while. And I wouldn't call him a mentor, but he's been kind enough to kind of, you know, give me some some sporadic mentoring. And um, I think I said something, some passing comment about that, like, well, and they're gone or whatever. And he instantly, like classic New York Pete, you know, like stopped me dead in my tracks and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. It does not get easier. And then he goes (laughs) through the math and he's like, I had four daughters. It was exhausting. It was hard. Now I have four sons too. They're all married and however many grandkids I has. And he's like, I am doing more parenting now than I ever have in my entire life. And he's, you know, 64 or something like that. And I thought, oh no, (laughs) God, it doesn't end, you know? So all that to say, you know, that's important because on one hand, you have to accept the limitations of your stage. And so there are you know, for example, morning prayer, even though the teenage years are actually in my experience, have been a lot harder than the young years for kids. um, morning prayer is a lot easier, you know
0: right. when
1: when the kids were little, they were up early, they needed constant attention you you don't watch them for two minutes, they could literally die.
0: you know now
1: <laughs> my fourteen year old the challenge is to like get him out of bed and he'll sleep in until ten in the morning, you know so. <laughs> On a summer morning, I can have a long, leisurely morning as long as I get up early. So there are differences, and each stage comes with limitations. But now it's kind of the opposite. When they were little, I could put them to bed every night and just relax. Now my son stays up later than I do, and I'm, you know, getting done with dinner, and it's, you know – 8, 830 at night, I'm exhausted. And that's when like the real parenting begins. And he just wants right. attention and time and conversation. And sometimes it's just playful talking about, you know, stranger things. And other times it's like talking about deep, profound things and moments that I can't miss. And mm. you know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, I, I've gained my morning, but I've lost my evening, you know? So mm-hmm. there are limitations to each stage. And I think you, my, my point is, don't procrastinate. So accept the limitations, but don't procrastinate and delay your spiritual formation and just know in the same way, like for a marriage, like, you know, Mm. you can't, you can't postpone having a healthy marriage till after your children are all grown or do the math on that one. Right. You just have to let your marriage (laughs) flex to find different ways to honor your marriage, get time together, care for each other at different stages of your children's life. and I think it's it's similar with Jesus you know now at a practical mm. level, I mean, we could take weeks back for hours. I have a whole workbook that I put together with the book. It's free. So if anybody wants that, oh, you can just go, cool. to my, go to my website and there's an actual workbook that isn't like a fill in the blank discussion guide. It's like actual practices for each of those four practices. Here's a list of ideas, things, exercises you can do. It's all like crazy practical nuts and bolts. This is how you do it. And, you know, and then sometimes it's just good to work things out based on stage of life, you know. So, for example, when you have little kids, you know, I remember like on Sabbath, we we had little little hacks where we divide the day for years. We divide the day into thirds and a third of the day we spent together as a whole family doing fun stuff, going to the park, getting ice cream. A third of the day, um, my wife would spend alone or go out with a, she's extroverted, go out, you know, with her friends for tea or coffee and I would watch the kids. And then a third of the day she would watch the kids and I would go off and be alone and read and do my introvert kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, so we did that. We divided into thirds and then we had a special box of toys when the kids were little that were just for Sabbath and it wasn't anything fancy, but you know how kids are like they get a new toy. It can be a spatula and you just got 45 minutes on the couch. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you just, you just bought yourself time to just breathe. And so we had like a special Sabbath box of, you know, little toys and books and stuff like that that they looked forward to and special foods and things to make it really fun for the kids. And, you know, so they're just, you have to, you have to work it out. And again, this isn't biblical theology. This is just kind of wisdom and best practices. And, you know, obviously it will vary from family to family and personality to personality.
0: Yeah. And yet it's so, it's so important. And there is that uh, illusion or delusion. You could say that my life's going to get, okay, if I just get on the other side of this project, on the other side yes. of this life stage, on the other side of my kids being little or being teenagers or whatever it is, there's this, then, un- uh, yeah, yes. then, then I'm going to yes. spend some time with God. Then I'm going to carve uh, out space in my life for this, but you never I'm, get there.
1: I'm 40 years old, and I just realized a few weeks ago that I have spent my whole life saying, well, next year, things will calm down a little bit, and <laughs> right. then... And I realized, wait a minute, I'm 40. I think at some point next year is an illusion in my mind. It's not a reality. Life is all we ever have is right here and right now.
0: So true. I'm 42. I can tell you, at least for the next two years, it's the same way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And yeah, we fall prey to that so often, though, because we do have young kids. You know, my almost nine year old, uh, he will come into our room at six thirty, often in the morning and be standing there very creepily like a horror movie. Uh, and I turn around and go, Whoa, you know, and, and I just like, Oh, I just can't wait until he's a teenager and he sleeps in. But like you're talking about, it comes with other challenges. Oh and, yeah. yes. So and
1: you can't go to bed at night. Cause he's not home by curfew. You're right. And you're, and you're
0: sweating. Like, you're is nervous. Is he
1: dying or is he on cocaine or at youth group? I'm not sure. <laughs> Hopefully the latter. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes.
0: Hilarious. Um, so uh, this question, I mean, you, you probably get this a lot because I think, well, first of all, when you write a book, people make a lot of jokes uh, about it. Um, I wrote a book about self-control and part of me regrets <laughs> that because I'll order dessert or something and people are like, dude, aren't you the self-control guy? Like what's going uh, on here? i the
1: self-control guy. Yes. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> but when I, when, I put wise. Out, yes, when I put out the word on uh, online about what questions people might have for you, I um, uh, one of them uh, that came up a few times was what difference uh, in your own life uh, has researching this topic, writing about this topic made for you? Are you did it work? Are you less hurried now?
1: Well, I mean, research is not going to actually slow down your body, mm. you know, <laughs> right. Um, so I mean the, the research, the reading, the writing, and there's so much new you know from the social sciences and neuroscience out about this right now, and obviously such a rich spiritual tradition of long-standing writing about it. So it's just deepened my conviction you know, understanding better the business model of Silicon Valley, the way the attention economy is designed, the way it's tied to politics and uh, the kind of culture wars and ethical debates. And, you know, that's definitely deepened all of my conviction. Once I've kind of gone down the rabbit trail and realized, oh, wow, like, So much of the world I live in has literally been designed to hurry me, distract me, addict me, steal my attention, manipulate me, nudge my behavior into voting for a certain person, thinking a certain way and thinking that it's, you know, authenticity and being true to myself, you know, so I'm living in this whole architecture that's not designed to form me into a Sermon on the Mount, kind of Matthew 5, 6 and 7, Jesus vision of human flourishing kind of life. Hmm. So, but information is not transformation. You can know all the stuff, you can read my book, and it will do diddly squat to change <laughs> you. It has to tra- it has to go from your mind in literally with this one, literally into your muscle memory. You have to actually like. At a neurobiological level, reset your kind of default setting of the speed by which you in your body, we're embodied creatures. This is Christian theology, Genesis 1, right? We're embodied, made from the dust. You know, we're physical creatures, whole creatures. We have to literally figure out how to slow our bodies down to align them with the pace. of We, meaning most of us in the West that are over speed, not all people, but most of us, you know? Right. So, you know, I mean, following Jesus is kind of like, I remember a mentor of mine once said to me, he's a golfer. I'm not a golfer. But uh, he said, you know, following Jesus is kind of like golf. He's like the challenge isn't to get it in your mind, you know. Like with golf, you can, you know, watch it on TV or watch a YouTube video on how to swing or whatever. It doesn't take that long to get it into your mind. It's it's getting it into your muscle memory to where you literally don't even have to think about it. It just mm-hmm. comes out of you. And uh, well, I'm not a golfer. I, I love I love that analogy, you know. And I think it's you can read a book on hurry and my manifesto for all the reasons why you should slow down and and the social science reasons for it and the biblical reasons for it now it's incompatible with love and you can't become a person like Jesus if you want you know you can read all that stuff but unless it actually translates into new practices new habits a new rule of life you know changes in your budget and your schedule and how you live it will never make its way from your mind into its muscle memory hmm. and you know the way of Jesus will forever be a youtube video of a professional golfer to us you know so all that <laughs> yeah. to say no, reading and research has not done anything to slow my life down. It's just deepened the conviction that I need to slow my life down. That work happens in relationships and in practices that literally take my body seriously as a temple of the Holy Spirit and attempt to slow my body down in order to attune my soul to the pace of Jesus. What Kosuke Koyama calls the speed
0: of love. Love it. Yes, that's great. And such a good word. I think there's been a A growing realization with a lot of Christians recently that, yeah, you can get all your theology down and theology is important, right? You can get all the the right uh, facts and ideas about God between your ears, right? Uh, But if it doesn't translate into the way you live, into the patterns of your life, into your habits, um, to the point where living like Jesus is almost reflexive and intuitive for you. Uh, then what does it matter? And, and I think right. of books like yours or Jamie Smith's "You Are What You Love." Oh, I uh, love that book! Yep. Great book that emphasizes this point. And I remember I, I'm reading this book and and he was making this point, and I'm kind of going, "No, come on, theology is where it's at." This, you know. And then at one point he says, "Well, if if you believe that, if you just need to get the right ideas about God straight, how's that working out for you?" <laughs> and you go, "Oh yes, man. yes. right. Uh, if, if it's not translating into your life." Uh, yep, there's something. The, the proof something is in missing. the pudding.
1: I'm yeah. reading Jim Wilder's book right now, Renovation of the Church. You know, he calls himself a neurotheologian. <laughs> yes.
0: And, I and, had him on the podcast last episode. That's wild that you bring you're that kidding up. Me. No. Oh,
1: amazing. <laughs> I'm loving his book. Yeah. So, I mean, his whole thing on the difference between thinking about God versus thinking with God yeah. and how one is not very transformative and the other is deeply transformative. And so I think what Paul's writing about in Romans 12, you know, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I don't think he's talking about, you know, the renewing of your mind. I don't think he's just talking about like reading theology books, reading N.T. Wright and right. agreeing with him. And that's not a slam on that. That's key. That's crucial. I do it all the time. I love yeah. it. I'm an avid reader. But it's it's thinking with God. It's actually taking on the mind of Christ, letting your neural pathways more and more conform to the, the neural pathways of Jesus himself as you begin to think Philippians 4, kind of what is noble, what is true, what is praiseworthy, think about, meditate on, dwell on such things. Yeah. So I really like Wilder's idea of thinking about God versus thinking with God. And that's what the spiritual disciplines do is they create space for us not just to think about God, but to think with God and his language to attach to God and love and let God transform us.
0: So good. Yeah. And that's funny that you bring up Jim. Um, I kind of, uh, I saw that the neurotheologian uh, title and I was impressed and jealous and thought of adding that to my Twitter bio. <laughs> even though <laughs> <I know. laughs> even though it's a blatant lie in my case. Oh, uh, Can I be but, like
1: neuropaster? Maybe just neurotic, neurotic pastor. Yeah, that
0: doesn't have yeah. the same ring.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm qualified for that, for sure.
0: Oh, that's awesome. What a great conversation. Uh, listeners, I want to encourage, you, I want to implore you to go get this book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It doesn't have a subtitle, right? Did you eliminate the subtitle?
1: It does. It's just not oh, on the cover. Subtitles. not on the How to stay emotionally healthy and spiritually alive in the chaos of the modern world.
0: Perfect. And um, tell us the URL for your website. You mentioned that, that you got some free resources there.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's just my name, John Mark Comer, J-O-H-N-M-A-R-K-C-O-M-E-R.com. It's all all the stuff's on there. If you go to my website slash unhurry, um, it it will give you all the good stuff.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And before we go, uh, and I know we're running a little longer than usual, but um, this has just been such a fascinating conversation. I want to ask you uh, a couple questions about writing because uh, that's kind of part of this podcast is we we have a segment called The Writing Life. So here's here's the deal I have, and this relates to the topic of your book. Um, I tell people I would have never finished a book if it weren't for a deadline, right? It's like, you know how this works. You sign the contract, you're all jacked up. Oh, this is fun. This is exciting. I feel like uh, I accomplished something, of course, you haven't yet because you haven't written the thing, and right. then all of a sudden that panic sets in you're like oh no i gotta I gotta crank out a two hundred page or whatever it is manuscript um and for me, if it wasn't for that deadline rushing down at me, <laughs> and often it's like with you know a month or two left that I really kick into high gear that that I don't know if I'd ever even finish it and I think a lot of projects are like that like you need that urgency that 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 kind of thing hanging over your head and and maybe it's mm. just that I'm a panic junkie. So mm-hmm. I guess my question is, how can <laughs> how can you be a writer <laughs> um, or do anything really without that that pressure that forces you into that panic where, frankly, you're hurrying? How can you kind of keep your peace and still be productive, I guess, is the heart of my question?
1: yeah. I don't know. I mean, I I think obviously that depends. There's less and less full-time writers in the world, you know?
0: Right. So um, Most of us have a day job. Yep.
1: Yeah. The the full-time writer answer to that is, you know, a daily quota. So what's the, Mm. who's the novelist I'm spacing on his name right now, who was asked, how many, how did you write so many books? And he said, I never wrote a book. I just wrote a page a day. And once a year, once a year I had a book, you know? So it's mm-hmm. the Stephen King. If you read his, I don't. Uh, if you read his memoir, it's a beautiful oh, memoir on
0: writing. Is yes. that the one? Yes. Yes. What a great yeah. book.
1: So you know his whole thing: a thousand words a day. You know, I think he did seven days a week, which is not a long work day. I mean, he was <laughs> yeah. done by one in the afternoon or whatever, and then he'd go walking. And, work and he writes every time. day,
0: even Christmas. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yep. Every single day, a thousand words, and a thousand words isn't. You know, that's. You know, that's not a lot. Right. So, um, so yeah, I think the full-time writer is just a day. The answer is a daily quota, you know, for, uh, the majority of us in the kind of new world that, you know, writing's not our day job. Um, I don't know. I mean, how I could, I don't really know how to do it. I can just tell you how I do it is yeah. I just get a schedule ahead of time. I block out long periods of time. So I don't do well. I'm jealous of kind of pastors and, you know, other type of people that can kind of, squeeze it, you know, two hours of writing in here at a coffee shop in the morning in between meetings or whatever. I'm a little jealous of that. I've never been that guy. I really Mm. need kind of non-distracted, blocked out time where I can really just think about nothing else. My phone is off. I'm, you know, maybe at a cabin or somewhere not distracted and I can just give myself writing is life-giving work for me. It's slow. So I'll, you know, work a Twelve hour day, but I'm not exhausted at the end of the day, you know. Hmm. So I just do kind of blocks um, the way my remuneration works with the church. You know, I'm paid ten months of the year by the church, and then two months of the year I'm kind of on on my own as a writer. Oh, so that's I'll cool. Just, yes, which works great for me. So I'll try to block out like if I can be gone for a month, or you know my my next upcoming book I could only get three weeks off, and the way that schedule was, so I got three weeks and. I did nothing else. I literally barely even checked my text messages for mm. three weeks. All I did was just sit down and, uh, and write. And I was able to get a whole manuscript, you know, rough draft done in three weeks. You know, so now obviously it's different for me as a pastor because I have previous material from sermons. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not starting from scratch. Um, so that, that part of the process for me is shorter. But, uh, you know, that's kind of how I do it is I just block out long
0: little chunks of time. That's great. And I think obviously everyone's schedule is different, like you said, and and people can do that to varying degrees. But I think it's so smart to have that kind of time blocking mentality, because when I've found when I just have a goal like, okay, I want to write 10 pages this week or something. Well, it doesn't happen or that doesn't mean anything. But if I say from this hour to this hour, I'm going to go off and just write, you know, and shut down the email, uh, leave my phone in a different room uh, and just kind of get that that time that's completely devoted to writing. Really helpful. Yeah. yeah.
1: I did that, you know, with one book that, um, I didn't publish and it will never see the light of day, but I wrote a novel for my kids. Oh, very uh, cool. yeah. And, um, and I just did it every, fr- my, my days off for Friday, Saturday, every Friday I would spend, uh, until noon working on it. So I'd kind of wake up, not crazy early or anything, wake up, pray. And then I go into my little home office and I would just make myself write till noon every Friday. And I did that for, I don't know how long it took, nine months, something like that. Yeah. And, you know, so that was the closest I've come to kind of, yeah, just trying to build that schedule into, because that's a different, that was a different type of writing because I'm literally making it up as I go. You know, yeah. it's not like, it's not like the nonfiction stuff where there's research and sermons in the past and you're bringing things together and outlining. Obviously fiction is a very different beast, you know? So I think it just depends on
0: what the project is. Sure. Yeah. One thing that's been absolutely crushing for my writing routine is all the coffee shops being closed. So, yeah. Oh, I,
1: brutal. I'm so sorry.
0: Drew. <laughs> no, I, I joked, you know that that when we look back on this time, we're we're going to it'll be impossible to quantify all the books and plays and songs that weren't written because the coffee yes. shops were closed.
1: They we're closed. <laughs> oh my gosh! I'm Something so about sorry. that air
0: conditioning and the ambient noise and the yeah. Something but about it. Yes. That's that's life. Hey, John Mark, thank you so much for this discussion. I know you are a yeah, busy. Thanks
1: for having me guy, on,
0: even though you're not hurried. Um, but I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, and like I said I look forward to the end of this whole uh, crazy time when we can grab that coffee in the the Pearl District at some point Um, sounds fantastic Drew thank you for having me on Oh, no problem anytime and again listeners I want to encourage you to check out John Mark's book The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry it really is a powerful book Uh, like we talked about it's important to have the right theology to get the right ideas uh, uh, in your head Uh, but you can do all of that but if you do not eliminate hurry from your life by emulating the way, the rhythms of Jesus's life, uh, the Christian life is really impossible to live. I'm, I'm more convinced than ever after reading this book. And, and this book will go a long way toward helping you uh, get those rhythms into your life. Um, and so and, and one thing I want to mention, too, is it's it's not just a theoretical book. It's got some really great, super simple but practical ways towards the end of the book for slowing down. And I loved those. And I'm going to, that's my challenge uh, is incorporating uh, some of those into my life. Again, the ruthless elimination of hurry by John Mark Comer. If you enjoyed this conversation, uh, please do us a favor and hop over to uh, either Apple or Google podcasts and leave us a review. Uh, when you do that, you do get rewards in heaven. Uh, that's not true, but, um, who knows, right? So do it, uh, just, it'll make you feel good and it'll help us out, help other people discover the podcast. Thank you again for listening and until next time, keep reading.